You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Footwear. Now, if you guys haven't checked out the Alpha Burley Pro yet, you need to. It is a badass boot that is designed specifically for hunters. What makes it so badass is that it has an athletic and glove-like fit that will hold tight to the foot and prevents chafing and rubbing while on the move. It also comes in a variety of different insulation levels and camo patterns and it's rubber so it doesn't absorb scent and it will keep your foot nice and warm while in the cold weather and dry in the wet weather. So be sure to head on over to lacrossefootwear.com and check out the Alpha Burley Pro today. Welcome to the Transition Wild Podcast, the home for those looking for expertise and inspiration on all things Western big game hunting. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 25, where we talk with Cliff Gray on archery and rifle elk tactics. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to the Transition Wild Podcast, hosted on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Hope you're having a great day, hope you're having fun, and most importantly, I hope you're out hunting. If you get the chance and you're feeling like you need to get to the mountains you should come out to Colorado and hunt elk that's what I've been doing the past week actually had Dan Johnson the founder the father the man the myth the legend out hunting with me this past week in Colorado um, with Ryan Iberg his buddy now my buddy as well Um, we were out doing some hunting this past week in um, some of my spots stayed at my buddy's dad's cabin had a great time, some really cool encounters, some close calls. Um, I won't divulge a lot of the uh, details of the hunt because Dan is currently releasing podcasts on that throughout the week. Um, so definitely tune in to the kind of uh, recap of the, the full week, the preparation, the, the hunt itself, and then kind of the... Um, you know, follow up after the fact. So definitely tune into that. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you check out Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram. You can go to sportsmansnation.com and subscribe there. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, 
Google Play, wherever you listen to the podcast at, that would be much appreciated. And if you love what you're hearing, if you if you like the content we're producing, make sure you leave that five star review. It'd be much much appreciated. Um, so let's let's dive into it today. We have Cliff Gray from Flat Tops Wilderness Guides, and this is actually uh, a returning guest, our first very first returning guest on the show. So um, I'm excited to about that. Cliff's a really knowledgeable guy. Um, if you haven't yet listened to that podcast episode. I can't remember the exact number, but it was pretty early on, um, probably, I think it launched in March, somewhere in there. So flip back a few episodes and find that one with Cliff. But today we're talking more elk hunting and elk tactics and strategy, where we kind of highlight both archery and rifle seasons. We cover some important topics or topics of discussion on what causes you know elk to move. We talk about the moon phase. Um, you know, the dry conditions here in Colorado and how that's affecting movement and elk concentration. And then we dive into different strategies and tactics that you can use or what Cliff does to have success, um, you know, early archery, uh, middle, middle of the season, and then also the rut. And then we break down kind of the four rifle seasons in Colorado. So first, second, third, and fourth, and, you know, kind of factoring in pressure and weather and snow and all these different conditions that can have an effect on elk and what you should and should not do. So it's just, it's a really informational um, episode, lots of strategy, lots of tactics, lots of useful information that you can use on your upcoming hunt. So um, let's not wait any longer. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Let's get Cliff Gray on the line. All right, on the phone with us now, we have Cliff Gray. How's it going today, man? Good. Thanks for having me again, man. Yeah, this, uh, I have to say you're the first returning guest on the Transition Wild podcast, so you should you should feel honored, Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I do, man. I do. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if that's a good choice on your behalf, but we'll go with it. I, I think it's a great choice because uh, I, I definitely learned a lot from our last podcast. I can't remember which episode that was, but we kind of talked more about, um, you know, outfitting and, you know, comparing that to maybe DIY stuff to what you have with your operation. And and uh, I told you I'd have you back on. So so here we are. I really appreciate you taking the time because I know it's uh, right smack dab middle of the season for you. I'm sure you're a busy guy right now. Yeah, no, uh, no problem. I actually, I I finished up a hunt early this last week, and so I was able to catch catch up a little bit. So it's actually not a bad time. Great, great, yeah. And uh, so I, I I've seen you been you know obviously you're a busy guy this time of year, but um, you were doing some sheep hunting earlier in the season. Did that um, did some of that start in August? Um, where was that taking place? Was that Colorado, or were you guiding somewhere else? Yeah, so all all the sheep and goat stuff I do in Colorado, and it's. <coughs> And excuse me, I'm a, I, I, we talked about it before, but I've got kind of a cold and listeners you're going to have to live with. But um, so I uh, I do, like, I, I know we're, we're going to touch on some archery stuff I know today, but I actually guide more sheep and goat in September uh, now than I do archery elk. And the reason is, it's just logistically. I've, I've got a bunch of guys that work for me, and the sheep and goat hunts are a little bit shorter, and I tend to have access to communication. So... I do a fair amount of that guiding. I mean, it, it, most of those hunts start like end of August, 
Um, and then they tail off, you know, the first week of October. So I think I've got, I had a sheep hunt this last week. Um, that's probably the one you saw there. And then I've got three, three more goat hunts. So, and those will, those kind of pile up. But yeah, that's what I do. And then, um, and then I do guide a little archery elk whenever I get a chance. I used to do much more of that, but that kind of give you the rundown. Yeah. Yeah. So you got a lot of sheep hunting going on. Um, and, uh, you know, running horses and all nine yards. Did you pick up that cold just from being worn down, like these grueling hunts, or is it just something that kind of just sparked out of nowhere? Oh yeah, the well, no, this is a side effect of having young children. <laughs> um, but no, you know what happened? You know, if you want to hear, here's the whole story. So we killed a ram. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's been four days ago, and then. I think what happened was I did just, I kind of got run down packing them out. And then my little boy, who's 16 months old, he just had a little cold, you know, just a minor one. Yeah. And I, I think I just got run down and then got exposed to it and then just picked it up. So pretty much what you're saying, you get a little stressed out, worn down, and you're more susceptible to that. Particularly when you have kids that go to school, and it's like a, it's like a cesspool of, uh, you know, colds and stuff at those things. So. That's yeah, the, that's the story. <laughs> well, that's no good. I hope you uh, hope you feel better soon. Um, speaking of kids, I know um, I know some of them are getting up to to that age. I've seen some of your videos that you post on Instagram where you got your daughter um, riding some horses and and kind of going in with you. Is that something that you're really starting to embrace and you know get them more involved with your outfitting operation? Is that is that kind of kind of steamrolling a little bit where they're getting more involved? Yeah, so, you know, they're, they're just getting to that age. So my oldest daughter is just, she's actually six tomorrow. Oh, wow. um, but uh, she uh, she's just getting to the age where she can kind of ride and be, be yeah. safe. But, yeah, no, I try to, you know, you know, I was exposed to a young age, particularly not so much the outfitting component of it, that comes with time, but in the hunting part of it. But for stuff, the, the earlier you're exposed to it, the better. You know what I mean? If you're gonna, if somebody wants to be into it that earlier in life, it's kind of like a long-term, uh, long-term uh, learning curve type of deal. You know what I mean? So I've been trying to get her to ride with me a little bit when I can. Uh, it's not easy. You got, you know, like, uh, what do they say? Uh, perception is not reality. Uh, I put a lot of pictures of her and videos up there, but I don't get her ride with it quite as much as I'd like to. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure in the coming years here, they'll uh, they'll be right along your side and probably integral part of your operation at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hopefully. You always hope so, but you never know what your kids are going to be into, right? Exactly. Well, if, if you're starting them, starting them from when they're in diapers, um, I, I would imagine they would have to, to take kindly to you can, enjoying it. <laughs> you can buy some. Yeah, you can buy some by forcing them to do it a little bit. <laughs> Exactly right. Um, well, cool. Well, obviously, uh, like I said, we've had you on the show before, but um, for maybe people who didn't catch the last episode with you, um, let's just give the listeners a little background on on kind of your outfit and tell us a little bit about you do, uh, what you do and, and maybe some of the hunts you offer and, and just kind of give a general overview of Flat Tops Wilderness Guides. Yeah, so, uh, and this will be a little bit of a review of the last time I was on. So basically, I have uh, permits that are primarily in the wilderness area, the Flat House Wilderness area. I hunt like the southeast 
corner of it. And then my family has a ranch that borders it, so we do all of our packing off of that ranch. Um, you know, outside of the sheep and goat stuff, business is horse and mule based. Um, some of that's guided camps out of you know out of a you know wall tent wilderness camps for both deer and elk. Um, and then part of that is drop camps, and that's just where we pack guys in. Uh, they use our camps and we pack out elk for them, that sort of thing. Uh, that's kind of more like the do-it-yourself option um, with some help from us. Um, my goat and sheep stuff, I do some sheep in the flat tops, and then I do goat stuff um, through temporary, temporary permitting and then also through uh, some some other outfitters I work with, kind of all over the place. Um, but mainly the, the wilderness areas around, around here locally. So that's kind of the, the gist of it. Um, it's... I guess I would say it's kind of like the prototypical uh, horse-based elk hunting operation is the is the guts of my business. Um, I shouldn't say just elk. Uh, deer have gotten have become a more substantial part of my business probably in the last three or four years, and that's just has to do with fluctuations and game management and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, because everything on that is is on the draw side too. Um, and and this was an operation that was started by your your family. Was it your dad? Was it your grandfather? No. So my so the, the one I purchased these permits five or six years ago. My dad's outfitting stuff used to be on the other side of Eagle. Oh, really? So more okay. like where you used to live. Yeah. Got it. Yep. Got it. So uh, so uh, not too far away, but that's where he. Uh, his stuff was. Um, so it's a different operation. I bought this one. It kind of been wound down, let's say, or kind of deteriorated a little bit. I bought it, um, I guess it's been six or seven years ago and then got it going again and kind of back up to speed, just operational and all that. And, uh, and I, I mean, I enjoy outfitting, guiding and all that, but I also enjoy the business side of this stuff. So it's been, been fun, but yeah, outfitting, cattle ranch and all that stuff has been a part of my business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, back, the background. Oh yeah, yeah. It's been part of your life for for a long time, and um, you know, one thing I can attest to for sure, like, so I've I've got a a buddy. Um, his dad has a cabin that backs up to the national forest here, and uh, we elk hunt out of that. And um, you know, earlier this season, and I've done a few of them before, but I've done um, we packed in and did a. Uh, kind of three-day elk hunt with everything on our back and uh, went in with tents and whatever. And it was opening weekend, and it was really nice weather and, you know, um, no rain, so it really wasn't that bad. But comparing it to this last week where I went elk hunting um, here and hunting out of the cabin, we got rain, you know, three out of the five days, uh, you know, some tough hunts. It's a, it's a lot more uh, rugged terrain where I hunt at down here. And, uh, it was just yep. so nice to be able to come back to a wood stove, someplace that you can dry your clothes out, um, you know, have some more of the amenities of home. And I'm just imagining, you know, with some of your wall tents and some of your, your operations, a lot of your hunters probably get that same setup as well. And it makes a huge, uh, difference to your yeah, mental, so, mental and physical. So that, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, the, like kind of the drop camp business model is built around what you're saying, um, particularly in the later seasons, um, you know, some of our, our archery stuff, I do like some of my guides will do, uh, like backpack based hunts. We, you know, some guys doing them this last week cause they could do multiple species. Yeah. Um, 
So we do a little bit of that, but really the guts of our business is based on what you're talking about. It's really, it's essentially providing like the amenities. I mean, the drop camp business, that's all that it is. And so, yeah, the, the tents have wood stoves in them and, and all that. And it, you know, it becomes like kind of what you're talking about. It becomes more of an issue as the weather gets worse, as it gets colder. Um, and then, you know, really, I think the thing that people discount the most about elk hunting in particular is yeah, it's it, it, it's you know it's manageable to backpack into a lot of these places, but getting an elk out is just brutal. Oh yeah, it's doable. There's a lot of really tough people, but um, but it's, it, that that's also a pretty significant component of it. They're just a big animal. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, especially if you're coming from out of state, you're not used to the elevation. Um, maybe you're not quite as physically prepared as you'd like to be and you show up, you get an elk down, that's, you're in for a world of hurt. So the horses I'm sure would come in very handy. Oh yeah. 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 Have you, have you, you, I've watched your Instagram. You've, you've had to pack a couple hours, right? Um, on your back. I, uh, you know, actually I have not, I've, uh, my bill I shot a couple years ago, I had a rolled ankle, so I was hunting actually pretty close to a road in this meadow, um, pretty oh, okay. secluded and we actually drug it out whole. Um, I'm just waiting for one of my buddies or waiting for this year to get one down and I'll, I'll for sure be packing it out. Cause that, I know that's not going to happen again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, actually probably as we get into some of the stress, find that sometimes you know, at elk when it's the pressure, you do kind of find them a little closer than you think. But, but yeah, no, packing elk out of your back sucks. There's no other way to <laughs> put it. But it's doable. Yeah. And like, I think we talked about this last time. I mean, there's a lot of guys um, that, uh, that, that I would say the general toughness, I, I shouldn't say toughness, but the willingness to go through a lot of hard, like more hardship. Um, is becoming more and more prevalent in the hunting community. Um, it's, uh, it, I've, at least I, I believe that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of see that trend as well. I've had some other guests and I've kind of asked them that question. Like, do you see more of a trend towards like this kind of DIY backcountry, um, you know, everything on your back set up and, and, um, you know, everyone's starting to see that same trend as well, where people are getting more into the embracing, the suck sometimes and uh just kind of get, yeah, get sure. deeper in yeah yeah no i think that's uh that's probably like a kind of a major trend not across everything not just hunting you yeah know, yeah uh, so pushing the but boundaries yeah, yeah yeah for sure so um so we're talking, you know, definitely what I want to dive in today, kind of the meat and potatoes of this of this episode is kind of more of on the tactics side and, you know, what, what you see as far as like strategy is some of the different parts of, you know, archery season, talking maybe starting out with the early season to getting more of the middle September to, you know, the rut. And we'll talk about maybe some strategies and tactics behind how you approach um, different phases of the year and maybe some of the different uh, factors that, that play into some of those decisions. And then I want to transition it over to um, rifle and how maybe you approach that and what's, how do you go about that differently from archery? And then, you know, also talking about the wide range of seasons there, you know, from early October to the end of November and how, you know, that plays into effect. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. If that's uh, if you're up for it, does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah, go for it. You know, I'll uh, and I think I'll I'll kind of give a uh, 
a preview of stuff on it, Adam. Yeah, you go know, for it. Archery, I, I, on archery, I probably have a little more of a flexible type of view on it than some folks. I think there's some guys out there that really pin it down. They try to, like, put a really strict framework on it. And I think those are there's some awesome guys that do that. Like, in particular, I think Chris Rowe does a good job of that, that sort of thing. Yeah. My, 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 my view on archery um, is maybe that uh, things can be a little more flexible. From from what I've seen, a lot of there's lots of exceptions to the rules on the elk. You know what I mean? I'll hit, I'll, I'll hear well, like I was scouting for sheep this year in on August 20th, and I heard more bugle in that week than I did the first week of actual archery season. You know what I mean? Oh wow! So there's little exceptions like that. I feel like archery, I tend to play a little more flexible, and then um, Rifle stuff, like strategies, primarily based on weather. Yeah. Um, so okay. we can go into that. But that'll kind of give you, give yeah. you a feel for at least my, my view on it. Yeah, for sure. No, that sounds great. Um, yeah, I saw I saw one of your, your videos that you posted, I don't know, it was probably a couple, two, three weeks ago, just before elk season started here in Colorado for archery. And uh, you made a comment like along the lines of, you know, elk are just, it's it's almost crazy this time of year how easy they are to find. But once once uh, archery or the hunting season kicks off, it, it definitely gets tougher. What um, what do you think? What What is that transition? Why is that just strictly hunting pressure where they're, they're, you know, getting pushed out of these areas and they're getting into more secluded spots? Or is this just kind of the time of year where they start breaking up and getting out of those herds? What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit of, of all those factors uh, you know like the i know I, the video you're talking about that was taken like in the middle of the day and those bulls that was like august 20th or something yeah and those bulls that those bulls that were with those cows were, were bugling in the middle of the day um and so uh it it's you know that's it's kind of odd and people people won't believe you when you say that but it just it's just how it is before the season you know if i had to speculate without having any sort of like scientific uh, proof of this I think what it is is just the elk have been, I mean, like our elk have been hunted hard for the last 50 years. Yep. You know what I mean? And so I think it's just we forced them to evolve um, to, to know, you know, once they start smelling campfire smoke, once they start noticing more traffic or whatever, it's time to probably change their behavior. Because um, really, you know, that time of year, it, it's, in, I don't mean to sound like an egomaniac, but within a three or four day period up above Timberline, that, that I can find two, three hundred elk, easy. Yeah. You know, any, any you know, any time, and then literally within, you know, two or three days, um, they disappear. I do think that, you know, part of that is the traffic. Like I said, part of it is that yeah, some a bow hunter shows up and they they kind of know what that means as um, an indi- you know an indication. I think, uh, you know, a bow hunter will walk across a high ridge or whatever, and all that country's so exposed, they, they know, they start to get the, get the idea. There is for sure a biological component of it that they just start to break up into smaller groups and they rut lower, where I think it has to do with it's a little bit cooler down there, feeds a little red, or more readily available, water and wallows and all that stuff are typically not above timberline, at least in our, in our country. Yep. So I think... All those factors coincide, and I think that our elk also have have 
learned to shift a lot of their once they know there's a new predator around, you know, like it has, like it's been occurring each year. And I actually think the cows transfer the knowledge, to be honest with you, Adam. Oh yeah. I mean, they're cows, and you know, bulls in these over-the-counter units of five, a five or six-year-old bull is like an anomaly. You know, he's basically been playing Russian roulette for four hours straight <laughs> and just got lucky. You know, but but an old cow is not uncommon, so they know what's up. You know what I mean? They. They know the deal, but I think that they they know when to start to become more nocturnal, um, and I think that in and you see that in other species too. Once they're harassed very much, they take a lot of their susceptibility in terms of moving around and stuff like that, and they make they start doing it at night. Yeah, yeah, and so, I I know with this year in particular, um, kind of the full moon was more towards the. The first week of season, I think. Um, do you feel like anything plays yep. into the moon phase at all, or is that, you just kind of throw that out the window? No, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like a strong believer in it, uh, like having a massive effect. But if you believe that pressured elk are more nocturnal, it makes a whole lot of sense that if there's a full moon that that's even going to be more extreme, right? So yeah. instead of instead of being able, like I think that you are like on a full moon, you are less likely to glass elk up in the in the prime times because they don't need to be up in the prime times anymore. They can do their feeding and stuff like that because you know they have better light. Um, I I don't have proof of that, but that that would kind of fall along with how I think about it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And but do you think because maybe they're doing more feeding at night and maybe bedding down before, let's say first light or right at first light, and there's not much movement, you know, during the early morning hunting hours? Do you feel like just because of their cycle and how they have to feed every so often or every six or eight hours, do you think like there might be more midday movement during that time period because they've they've already been bedded for a while and they're going to get up and start to move? Or what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny you say. I was having this exact discussion with one of my guys. I don't know, man. Like, I feel like our elk, at least, once they might feed in the open in like the morning and night, you know, in the prime time hours. And then, yeah, I'll catch elk that stand up in the timber, you know, and move around and feed some. Mm-hmm. But my elk, my elk, they don't get up and go cross country ever once hunting season is around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, They're still there. They don't, don't blow know. out of the country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't, like a like a bull might, you know, work in thermals or whatever. At night, he might be with some cows, and he might be a mile from where he beds, right? Yeah. Or, or more. And so, he, but once he goes back to bed, it sure seems like he's not going to, at least for us, he's not going to redo that during the day. I'll see him get up in the timber. And that would be one of my strategies. If you're having, like, a really hard time uh, finding elk in archery season, like, particularly when they're quiet, it's brutal, but just glass and timber during the day is is not a bad way to find them. You know what I mean? Like, don't go in the timber, but get across from somewhere you, where you're really suspicious they're bedding and just keep glassing it because the elk will get up, and I don't know – we're kind of getting off track of your question. No, this is great. The full moon. Yeah. But like to me, regardless of the full moon or not, elk generally do mill around. That's when you're going to see them. You're not going to see them 
you know, when they're when they're just fully fed. You're going to see, like, typically what I'll, I'll see is I'll be watching the hillside for an hour and a half, two hours, and then a cow will go, will go between two big conifers, and I'll see her. And then and then maybe I'll start focusing on that spot, and you'll start to see other elk there. But uh, kind of a long, long-winded answer. But that I don't, you know, does a, does a full moon make it so I'm going to catch a bull taking cows to feed in the middle of the day? I, I don't see that in my country. Uh, from what I, you know, experienced chatting with other people on stuff, I feel like less pressured elk, it, that might be true. Got it. Maybe more of a scenario on a private ranch or someplace that has pretty low pressure, low hunter numbers. You might see that as more of a consistent, but we're talking over-the-counter, public land, um, elk hunting. It's it's kind of up in the air or it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, and the, and the reason that I would kind of draw that conclusion is I see it with other species because so like if you look at bighorns, most of the units in Colorado they're basically not hunted, right? Like they have yeah. there's one tag and there are two tags or whatever, and it's a month long hunt and it's you know they really I think they act like bighorns would uh, if they weren't hunted pretty much you know basically right. Yep. I'm sure there's some transfer of the fact they get hunted year over year, but it's pretty minimal. But if you go to a bighorn unit that has, you know, seven archery tags in it for a month and then has five rifle tags in it, which we have a couple of those in Colorado, those sheep will act almost exactly like elk because they've been getting harassed for a month by archers by the time the rifle comes and then they get harassed by rifle guys for a month too. And a lot of and a lot of times it's not a whole lot of sheep and they're getting hunted every day by residents, right? So... What's interesting to me is those sheep will act almost like elk in terms of when they move, right? you got to be there right when the sun comes up to glass them in the open. You've got to be, you're going back to camp an hour and a half after dark every night. And if, if you're getting there before that, you're probably missing out on your best chance to see them. So those pressured sheep are just like that. And that's exactly what I see with pressured elk. But bighorns that don't get hunted hard, I mean, shit, they'll get up and walk across, you know, above timberline at, you know, 11 o'clock. You can't hardly believe it. You know what I mean? If you've been hunting over-the-counter elk for two weeks and you go guide a sheep hunter, I mean, you see a ram that you're that you're hunting walk across a basin at 11 o'clock, you can't hardly believe it, you know? So that's that's why I draw the conclusion that the elk elk do the same thing. The more they're hunted, the more they they, they make it difficult, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes makes total sense. And uh, you touched on this a little bit earlier, kind of more of that midday strategy. Um, you know, we're kind of past the early season now here in in Colorado. The first two weeks have passed, but um, you're but what you're saying if 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 you're not finding elk, if you're not chasing bugles, you you're you're basically saying it's better to to not push through these potential bedding areas and do more of a, a glassing approach. Um, is that, is that kind of your strategy? If you're not seeing elk, if you're not finding them, you're just sitting back and are you glassing, are you glassing kind of more into Aspen? Are you looking more into dark timber, these cuts? What, what are you kind of doing with that strategy? Yeah. So if it's weather like it's been, you know, pretty, pretty darn nice. Um, and then it kind of depends honestly, like what elevation grade you're hunting. Like one, one kind of general tip I'll give is that. Not all the elk are high 
in only the timber stuff and not all the elk are down low in the aspens. I've never seen a year that they're only in one of those elevation grades. You know what I mean, Adam? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, don't, I think people get a little bit, well, but over here in Michigan, everybody's seeing them high. So they draw the conclusion. that I, I don't really buy that. I see elk across the elevation grade typically in almost all years, but in my area, primarily this time of year, your glass and dark timber, okay. uh, the, you know, the aspens, they, they just don't bed in the aspens when it's this warm. Um, but a lot of times if you can find, if you could find timber, that tim like thick timber that goes into to thick aspens, the feed in the aspens is way better. So you will see like a cow get up out of the timber and walk into aspens at, you know, in the middle of the day and just feed on the edge. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because the, yeah, the conifers just don't grow the feed underneath them. So when you get into the aspens, they, you know, they, they have more feed underneath them. Um, so all glass, I mean, all glass timber is super boring. Um, but you'll eventually, if you know, you, if you walk ridge lines and stuff like that, where you're staying out of where they're going to bed, um, you know, and you start seeing some sign where they've been traveling, I mean, somewhere around there, they're bedding. It might just mean you got got to go through the pane of glass and all that timber and find them moving around and they're milling around. And something to focus on for the rest of your hunt. To me, that's the key to the whole thing with these elk. You know, they got them, I mean, the country we're talking about in, you know, Vail Valley, like, well, let's say Garfield, Pitkin, uh, Eagle uh, counties. I mean, you're talking about they got the elk density down pretty low, right? So yeah. the whole name, the whole name of the game is finding some elk to spend the rest of your time hunting on. So you want to use that strategy to locate them if they're not talking or whatever at night, which is good too. If you can hear them bugling at night, then you know where they're at. But the other <clears throat> the other component of that is once you find them, you sure as heck don't want to go through that timber, you know. And I, yeah. I, I'm 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 a big adamant, uh, or I am a I'm adamant because I deal with a lot of hunters, you know, and some of these guys are hunting the same camps and that sort of thing. Um, and so you want to really avoid walking through timber at all costs, to be honest with you. Um, because if you get elk up in the timber, um, they're not, they're not going to be there. If you blow them out of a meadow, um, you call a bull in and you do something dumb, like miss them by 10 feet or whatever, it's very likely he's not going to go anywhere. You yeah. know what I mean? But if you, if you, blowing out of that timber like everybody's had that you're walking into timber and you get a big whiff of elk and m most you'll that's i i use the smell of elk quite often i don't it sounds goofy to some people but a lot of times <laughs> you can smell them yeah um they smell like a dirty like a dirty horse barn like where somebody has a balls in a while you know <laughs> like that musty smell yeah. and you'll smell that and you go oh shit because you'll be walking through the timber and if you smell that real thick you're already too close, right? And then right about then, you'll hear, it'll just, they'll jump up and these elk that have been hunted, they don't stop and look at you. They just start breaking stuff and crashing through. And if you have that, you're almost better off not hunting there for three or four days because they're not going to, they're not going back there to bed, you know? Yeah, that makes total sense. And I, I've been in the scenario. Yeah, no, it does. And I, we've all been in that scenario too. You hunt, you hunt for like, let's say a week, you got a week hunting trip, let's say, and, um, 
you know, you're kind of, I've been into some of these areas where it's like, all right, the sign is there, the rubs are there, the, you know, there's shit on the ground, there's beds, it smells like a barnyard, but yet I haven't seen anything. Do you think, do you think there was, there were elk there and, and we blew them out? Or do you think it's, it could be a scenario of like, they, they were there and they just haven't been there for a couple days um, but yet there's still fresh sign. Like, what's your take on that? Like, if you feel like there's good sign there and everything's fresh, but yet you haven't seen anything, have they just moved on or did you blow them out? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this time of year, they will kind of move around. You know, as they transition, like the little bulls lose the cows, bigger bull picks them up, they can leave a spot even without you messing with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it could be that. I think that if you really, you know, you, you really kind of key in on the sign, um, you can draw a little conclusion, right? Like if it's slimy green poop in the morning, I mean, they're still there, you know, they yeah. could just be, they, they could still be there and just not come out. You know, I, I think that, I think that's not uncommon, you know what I mean? For them to basically hold out and that's when it gets tempting to go in there and try to find them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and well, I, you know, go ahead, man. Uh, I was going to say, well, would you recommend like kind of hanging around that area and giving it a few days or would you be like, all right, I'm pulling out and I'm going to go try a different location. Cause I'm always at that conundrum of like, do I just sit and wait and kind of be patient or should I go find a spot where, you know, maybe I can get some eyes on them and then, and go from there. How do you weigh that balance? Yeah. I mean, I, w- I would say if you've been working it a couple of days and they're not cooperating, like they're not coming out for you. You feel like you're looking in the spot and, and you're in particular, you're not finding green slimy poop like happened last night. Then yeah, I just go look for, just look for a different group. Yeah. Cause I think you have to, I think when you're hunting with a bow and this will get into a little bit of my rifle tactics, which there's a couple of them people will not agree with just so you know, Adam, <laughs> um, but I know, I, I, I know, I know they work. Um, but, uh, the, the thing with a bow is that I think sometimes you have to realize, like, well, these elk could be here, but who cares, right? If they're not going to they're not going to bugle, they're not interested in that, they seem to not be moving out of this pocket of timber or a big swath of timber, what's the use of me going in there? You might as well, if it's, it could just be like four or five cows that are not, have not, you know, started to get into estrus or whatever, and they're just hanging out in there. You know what I mean? Or maybe they got a little bull with them or whatever. So they could just hold out in there and you could waste your whole hunt and they're never going to be achievable, you know? So I think that's okay to have that perspective and just go look for some others. You know, I think you have to draw your own conclusion on that. Like in rifle season, if in, in rifle season, if I know there's a bull doing that or something like that, I'm out of there and kill him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but that's that's different because you can shoot a rifle 400 yards. You know what I mean? And it, and, and if you, you know, you got to know your geography really well. But you know, I will I will if I know there's elk holding up somewhere, I'll run them out of the trees and get guys to shoot them. Effective, uh, but it's not effective when you're talking archery. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
So, so more speaking of archery, kind of early seasons, more, um, you know, maybe sitting wallows, watching meadows, more glassing than, you know, hiking through all this timber, um, you know, maybe concentrating on some water. But now that, now that we're kind of moved into more of the, the middle of September and, and the ruts really starting to, you know, start to kick in kind of what's, what's your setup look like for, for archery hunters? Are you going high? Are you going low? Are you listening for bugles from the road? Are you, you know, kind of setting up in pockets of, of timber, aspens? What, like, kind of what's your initial strategy for more of the, yeah. the rut phase? Yeah, so, um, and I wouldn't, and, I, and I'll do some of this early, uh, too, just so you, you're spot on that early stuff. You end up glassing a lot and, and all in, in kind of that strategy, but I will try to get bulls to bugle early, too. Um, and this is like, I'm sure you you know, there's like two very different trains of thought on this, even amongst myself and my guys. So I, <laughs> I can only really tell you how, how I do it. Is I will tend to, if I know the rut is on, I will tend to spend my time trying to get a bull to bugle with bugles. Um, and I will travel around kind of sounding like, you know, because I, you know, people think, oh, they, these guys, they sound like idiots or whatever, and they're just traveling everywhere. Yeah, from your perspective, it for sure might come across that way, but it works. You know what I mean? If you cover enough ground and finally get a bull to bugle down in some little chunk of timber, well, now you got your day figured out. Yeah. So I will, I will tend to try to locate elk, you know, pretty aggressively um, early on if, if I don't know where some are at, you know them up or you know somebody in a pocket or whatever i'll tend to i'll tend to do it that way i mean i would say my my personal strategy is very similar to like if you go online and listen to somebody like Corey jacobson or something like that it's going to be very similar because it works for me you know what i mean and the, the other thing i'll tell you is and a lot of guys disagree with it particularly on highly pressured elk but <clears throat> i find that in our country men and I'm sure you find it in the stuff that you hunt that's a little more rugged, that people think those bugles travel forever. But with the thermals and the... I mean, I've sat and watched bulls from 500 yards away, and I can see them just screaming. Like, I can see them bugling, like, physically, but I can't hear them. Oh, wow. I don't know. You you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, it, it, and it's because the wind's lifting it off of them or whatever. But so I think that sometimes we we tend to think that all the bugling is shut down in a unit or that part of Colorado or whatever, but really we're just you're just not finding them. And I think that's become more and more prevalent with this lower with the lower density of elk. Because you can spend a lot of time in a drainage with no elk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean the elk aren't that doesn't mean the elk aren't bugling. Because you could go right over the other ridge and rip bugles or whatever in the early morning and you can get a bull to bugle and he can be right under you and he could have been bugling the whole time yeah. so i, I mean that, that that's one thing i'd say is that man they're like when the wind's right and they're they can be so far away and you hear them but sometimes they're just they're bugling right there not far from you and you can't hear them yeah that's a that's a really good tip i actually experienced that from uh last season i was hunting in one kind of drainage <clears throat> basin and um my buddy was the next one over I, we both started in the morning. I I hunted. I didn't see a single thing. I was ripping bugles. I couldn't get anything to answer. He was one one drainage over, and he had a hot cow in there, and there was literally four bulls, 
you know, just, just making a ruckus. And it was, uh, it was quite the sight for him, but I wasn't that far away. I mean, maybe a half a mile as the crow flies, uh, maybe not yeah, even, and, him. and I couldn't, I couldn't hear a thing, you know? So that's, it's, it's a good thing, yeah. you know, put boots on the ground, move, move, move over and, and just stay uh, mobile and be flexible. Yeah. And that's like kind of the scenario. That'd be the other tip I would give. And I've, and I've talked to some biologists that one in particular who raises a lot of elk. Um, he's, he's done a lot of free range stuff too in his life. Um, but he's, he, he raises a lot of elk. Uh, for the Indian reservation. And he told me that one of his, like, this whole thing about when bulls start to bugle and stuff, yeah, there's, when a cow's in estrus near them, they're going to get crazy, right? Yep. But generally, the the one variable that matters a whole lot that people discount is just dead to be elk. When there's, if, if you know, like, they'll go crazy, right? And you're only talking, like, there could be literally one cow. So one cow, four bulls, and just because the concentration of bulls is high, high enough, it can sound like there's a hundred elk in there. Because yeah. bugle like, they bugle like crazy against each other. But if you got one bull and there's a low density of bulls around and he's not having to deal with them, he's generally not going to bugle very much. It doesn't really matter how much the seat, you know what I mean? doesn't matter what time of the month it is. You know, he's not going to bugle that much if, if the density's not there. And those guys have studied that. I mean, if you if you get elk packed into a small area, they'll bugle almost over anything, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of a, something to keep in mind. A lot of times it's not that, you know, because you hear that all the time in Colorado, that the rut shut down, that they're rutting after the season. I do think they are kind of running a little bit later, but they're still, right now, there's cows getting bred, guaranteed. You know what I mean? I mean, because calves are still still coming out at the same time, so they're, they're getting bred. Um, so, but I think a lot of the kind of like, you know, this these, these ad hoc views about the rut really have to do with the fact that the bulls are not dealing with as many other bulls, so they're just generally quieter. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Um, this is kind of a random kind of question, but like along the lines of like, you, we've all had those days that are just like off the charts, right? Like just the action's good. The, the elk numbers are high. You're getting into a lot of them. Do you ever, do you ever speculate that there's like just a, a certain kind of weather condition or time of year or barometric pressures like is there certain things that you've maybe noticed over the years that this is going to be an elky day you know like you're just really going to get into them based on these factors or just kind of random um just wondering if you have any correlation there i I mean i would yeah and then you you gotta wonder like how much of these correlations are just drawn from personal experience (laughs) but i'll tell you i gotta tell you what i think I do think that for sure a change of weather, like a Christmas in the morning that hasn't been there the last few days, like a little cold snap, I yeah. think that helps. I think I do think barometric pressure helps when storms move in, move out. They do seem to be more active. That and that's not just elk, sheep, and goats for sure in the same way. Um, so I, I do think there's a things can feel just elk here. I mean, when we get snow, or like when we used to get snow, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've seen snow this time of year of, you know, four or five inches, 
that that helps always. You know what I mean? Yeah. That seemed to get them more active. Yeah. Um, so those are all. I I mean I can't say without a without a doubt or whatever, but um, I think those are, that's a pretty likely that all those things do do snap things in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, getting back to kind of more of an archery tactic here, just because you're closer quarters, I've always heard, um, I've heard both sides of the spectrum. I've always heard guys talk about, well, you need to get above the elk in the morning, um, you know, so you can make a play on them. But I've also experienced, like, I, I, I've found that I like to kind of stay below them in certain scenarios because I got the thermals coming down and I work up through these bedding areas and then I get up top and then I kind of work back down when the thermals switch. Like what's, what's your thought mm-hmm. process there? I mean, do, do you hunt them high in the morning or do you stay below them and then work up to them? Um, kind of what's your take on that? Yeah. So I would say that like my general strategy is very similar to what you're talking about. It just depends on the wind. Um, yeah. and, so, yeah, I, I won't, <clears throat> there's no way that I'm going to go. So the thing about, you're almost always, go, your wind, if you're above them, the challenge, if I'm above them and I get one, one thing about is almost anywhere, you can travel better above them, right? Yeah. Like it's just easier to travel. In, in our country in particular, it's way easier to travel at Timberline than it is down low. So you tend to do a fair amount of that if you're trying to locate elk. Um, but if I find them, I don't hunt them from the top. You know what I mean? Because generally, what you're, you're almost always going to have your thermal switch um, just due to time. You know what I mean? So yep. um, that's, you know, it's going to take you. Or the bull may, you know, it's not like they're all going to run to you or whatever. So it's really risky business. To work a morning thermal because you know it's going to change you know <laughs> what i mean yeah so um i would say that 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 is you know i might go now if it's a little bit later and you get one bugling the thermals already changed and i can drop down below them then yeah you're good because you know that wind's going to be good for a while um but generally i would use the strategy that you sounds like you kind of use and that's whatever my wind is like and like you know it's tricky i'm sure you found this that sometimes you know, your your downward thermal in the bottom of the a bottom will will never change. The side of the hill, you know, at nine o'clock, and that bottom there can kind of will always be going down just because of the cool air down there. Yeah. Um, and you can use that. You can use that to your advantage too. I have found that generally elk bed somewhere for a reason, and it has to do with the wind. You know what I mean? Like they, you've probably if if you. I, like, I think anybody who, and some guys view this as a little bit of hocus-pocus, but, like, these these elk, and those people who view it that way, just, they haven't hunted pressured elk very much because elk are just the most unforgiving animal on the planet in terms <laughs> of wind. Like, you, you've probably experienced that. They just will not, you're not going to get away with it. You know what I mean? It's like, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, on other animals, even mule deer, yeah, I've I've covered 50 yards because I had to to get the, a little bit closer for a shot or whatever with wind going right through it, and I've killed them. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to get lucky every once in a while. Um, with elk, I never have had that happen. Anytime you think that I'm just going to wing it and, oh, the wind's bad, but we got to get it done, it just never works. You know, they're just super unforgiving. So I think if 
somebody who's really learned to elk hunt, if they key in on the wind, all of a sudden they'll start to they'll they'll start to have all these observations of the elk and realize why they move a certain way, why they bed a certain way. It's kind of all about that. Yeah, makes makes total sense. It really does. Um, do do you notice anything different this year with it being um, granted? Colorado had a really uh, low you know, snowpack. We didn't really have much of a winter, not a ton of snow in the high country. Most of it was melted off by, you know, middle of June, let's say. Um, and then we haven't had a lot of rain throughout the summer. Have you noticed a a big difference in kind of movements? Are they more concentrated around water? Are they pushing lower down onto private? Um, what's kind of your take on that this year? So the the caveat is that our country, even in a dry year like this has water, kind of all over it, Got but it. Um, I, w- I would say that uh, I'm sure in areas that don't have those conditions that the elk are probably lower towards water, almost, oh, I'm sure that's the case, but having said that, in our in our area, they have been much lower than they have been in the past, and I think it's probably for us less to do with water and more to do just with the alpine grasses just never got going. You know, they have such a short season. Um, you know, they don't get that tall anyway. But this year, it's almost like they're just, they, they never even started. It's like they're burned up, you know? Yep. So we haven't seen near as many elk as we typically would up high. Um, so uh, that's been, yeah, I'd say that, I mean, it's a pretty stark difference for us. Yeah, no, I, I noticed the same thing because uh, the first week of archery season, I was actually concentrating on some public that bordered some private that had alfalfa fields and and uh, hay fields, and they were just hammering those fields at night. So I was trying to I was trying to intercept them uh, going out to feed and then coming back to bed. I could never quite close the distance um, on them, but it, uh, that's kind of what I was noticing. It was less about the water and it was more about the feed because, um, I can't remember if this is right, but like, don't elk need like 20, 30 pounds of grass a day or something like that just to kind of maintain. Yeah. Something high. I mean, they're, they, they remind me that they're a lot, they're a lot like cattle, you know, they, yeah. like feed is important. You know, it's, it's, it, it's not like they're one of these other animals. Well, another thing is that even if there's not a lot of them, like, you know, they, they're herd animals. So they, they work through feed really quick. Yeah. You know what I mean, Adam? So it's yeah. like, you know, I, I don't know the exact numbers. I'm sure you're probably right. Probably about like a horse, you know, ghost or something, you know, um, 20 pounds or something. So they got to eat. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. So we've talked a little bit about archery and kind of some tactics and strategy there. Um, let's, let's kind of talk over, talk, uh, about rifle and kind of that whole transition obviously you know at least in Colorado there's there's you know first rifle second third fourth and um you know kind of the different phases of that and I know you mentioned weather as as kind of a, a primary factor but like kind of what's your breakdown what's the biggest difference in strategy going from archery to to rifle um hunting what's what's kind of the big difference there and how you should approach you know a hunt or setting up or you know kind of your overall game there what's what's the big difference um so well it's way easier right (laughs) (laughs) once you find elk it's like it's way easier so but anyways um 
you know, I, so I'll kind of start with first season, like holding the weather kind of constant. Like, you know, last the last few years, we haven't had any weather by first season. That seems to be kind of the new norm. Yep. Um, who knows, you know. Um, I have, I will say that, like, the last couple years, pretty consistently, I've, I've heard bugling season, um, including including a few bugles, or a fair amount of bugling that were that, that I, I uh, instigated. So I still think I, you know, they are, they are, they're kind of tailing off the rut, but you can still locate, locate with bugles. Um, you know, it, the first rifle season, if you've been, you know, you got friends who've been archery hunting or whatever, and they were into elk, you could use that knowledge. We, we use a fair amount of that where we had been seeing elk. Um, I haven't found that like the last few years at least i haven't found that the cows have totally been away from the cows or excuse me the bulls have not totally um gone and done their done their own thing by first rifle season like once you're in the second yeah i mean they're they're back split up what we tend to have if there's if there's no weather and this is kind of a strategic thing to keep in mind is that you know i would suspect even though the elk are a little bit lower right now that once those cows, like towards the end of first rifle and the second rifle, once those cows get back together and the bulls uh, leave them, those cows and, and the calves, they tend to get in groups and they kind of go back up if there's no weather. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the bulls, the bulls sure seem to go find just a crap hole to go stay in. You know <laughs> what I mean? Until until you find them, that tends to be the case with us. We, you know, and I and. But having said that, you know, legal bulls sometimes will stick with those cows, and then we'll go we'll go hunt them in there. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean. But uh, but generally, you're you're back to, by second season. You're kind of back to hunting solo solo bulls or three or four bulls together, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So and like, we're, I mean, oh, go ahead. We're glassing. I mean, we're basically glassing the kids at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. So like, so what you're saying is basically first rifle, if you draw that tag here, at least here in Colorado, it's a draw tag. Um, you're kind of playing more off of the, the tail end of the rut. You could still get into some of that action. You're still letting out bugles. You're maybe playing off of what you normally would for archery season. And then by the time you move into second season, those, those groups are starting to break up the ruts, uh, you know, pretty much past and you're kind of getting more into secluded areas, finding these hellhole pockets, uh, drainages, you know, that thing. Um, that's kind of, kind of yeah. the overall mindset or that big transition there from early October yep. to kind of end of October. Yeah. And for us, and, and this is the, the caveat is that for us, private land is, is relative. I mean, it's a pretty good travel for these elk. It's not like we don't hunt borders of private land. Um, or, or very, it's a very little bit of our, our deal. Um, but having said that, like that transitionary period, that's when I think our bigger bulls leave for the most part and go to private. Okay. Uh, not, I mean, I don't mean all, I don't mean all of them leave, but the bulls that do end up on private, that seems to be when they go. Um, and that's, and I think that's the equivalent of, you know, some of the bulls stay in the wilderness, stay on the public and they go to little nooks and crannies they feel safe in. But generally, the bigger bull, or a lot of the bigger bulls, that's when they go to private. Got it. Got it. So, uh, like, where these bulls go, um, let's say let's say public, for instance, like, what are you looking for there? Are you looking, like, for some rock bands and, like, 
cliffy stuff where it's really rugged, where they've got an advantage of, you know, the thermals coming up with something at their back, like a, like a cliff that, you know, would, would keep something from coming over the top. Are you looking for downfall? Are you looking for just further away? Like what's, what's kind of the, the norm there? If there is one, um, you know, what are you finding for bull sign or where you're getting into them in some of these later rifle seasons? So I think all those are all those are like generally good things to look for, Adam. But and I'm not saying this like is it is like a joke. It just is what it is. It kind of comes from like I like to find a spot where a bull is. You know what I mean? <laughs> they 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 will go they will go to a spot and they'll literally stay there. <clears throat> they'll stay. I mean, they'll stay in like a fight if they have water feed and then they don't get disturbed. Bulls can stay in like a 500 yard diameter circle for like a month. Oh, <clears throat> I've wow. seen them do that. So, you know, and that's what makes it tricky, right? You got to find them in there. I think that generally, like the terrain you're talking about, you know, uh, avalanche shoots, that sort of thing, that seems to be pretty good. You know what I mean? Because they, they, stuff doesn't go down and walk on top of them and get them, get them scared. Yep. But I've also seen them like, I've been up like above big swath of dark timber with like scattered meadows but like really mellow terrain like almost flat terrain and look down in those meadows and the bull will be he'll just be living in the you know a like a five acre meadow there and he's not coming out of there you know what i mean and he's just there so they don't necessarily have to be in like really rugged terrain um i that's the biggest factor is that it's somewhere that there's no traffic yeah you know what i mean so like a real rugged shoot with dark timber and it's all, it's got volcanic rock in there or whatever. It looks nasty. If you're seeing it from a main trail, it's probably still not a good spot. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because somebody, somebody's glassed it, right? Somebody looked down in there. If they saw a bull, they went in there and trounced, trounced around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's my view on it. <clears throat> um, but I think that's a key thing is just to realize that those bulls can stay in one spot. You know, whether, the, if you get big snow accumulations, you know, kind of all hell can break loose on that stuff because they have to move. You know, they have, they, they got to get some feed. If it's, if it gets up to their, if it gets up to their brisket or something, they're, they're leaving, you know? Um, but I think finding those little spots, and it's so frustrating to even say it because all that equates to like a really, uh, a real struggle. You know what I mean? Because you're looking for a needle in a haystack at that point. Oh yeah, yeah, and and uh, I kind of like your, you know, touching base on some of these like overlook spots, right? Like they're not necessarily in the most rugged location. They're not necessarily five miles off a trail. Um, they could be relatively close, but they're just in an area where people don't go or it's overlooked. So that that could also be a possibility, I'm sure. Yeah, or it's hard. It's hard to get a good. You know, it's hard to glass it or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? You got to crawl up on. <clears throat> when I used to hunt more, you know, more like road systems and stuff like that. A lot of times, like if there's just somewhere where you've got to crawl up some crappy sagebrush hillside, you got to crawl up there to look in somewhere. A lot of times, you crawl up there and look in there, and we'll be elk a half mile from the road because nobody, because people don't want to do it. You know what I mean? Um, road hunters tend to like hunting on the road, you know, so if you, <laughs> you know, if you make just a little, 
you don't have to get crazy about it, but you're you're hitting on a thing that I do. I think elk a lot of times are like that. We just get where people because if people don't see them, they, people do. Like if you were a ton of hunters in Colorado, but if you spread them all over the landscape, if they're if they're just kind of just take you know people are naturally going to travel the same path. Yeah, it's just how we do, right? Like we're all going to just kind of hit easiest. the same little main arc. <laughs> yeah, the easiest because when we're hiking, we're not we're not like trying to go do you know you're just naturally going to fall on this path. And so a lot of these little spots, even if they're close, they don't, people don't, if they, if somebody can't glass in there, they never, they don't, the elk don't get messed with. Yeah. I'm kind of starting to see that trend. I, I definitely noticed it with more of my whitetail hunting that I do on public land and, um, Kansas and Iowa. Like I find that, you know, the, the overlooked spots or the spots closest to the road, cause everyone has this mentality of like further, further, further. I gotta get away. Gotta get away. Um, you know, but I've noticed that like for my whitetail hunting where, you know, closer to the parking area or closer to the road sometimes can be really good because people just overlook that or walk right past it. And then you get into that middle kind of half a mile to mile in. And, uh, although it looks prime or you think you're further back in, um, that's where most of the hunting pressure is. And then if you go beyond that, you know, then you kind of lose it again and and maybe get into more animals, but there's kind of, I kind of separated into three different or to thirds, right? So you got the close and that's kind of overlooked potentially. And then you've got kind of the middle hunting pressure and then you've got the, 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 the last third that maybe is more of the remote guys or, you know, packing guys. Um, that's the way I look at it. And I'm starting to see the same thing with elk as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a good way to think about it. And it's kind of like levels of, you know, like when you're way back in there, they're a little more forgiving because it's just not as much traffic. So you might find something, you might find a bull 10 miles in that is a little more exposed. You know what I mean? Um, Whereas close, you know, and a lot of this has to do with just topography, vegetation, and that sort of thing. Also, like if you get, like I can, this is an example, like, there's areas in Colorado where you can drive to what, to the type of topography that, sh- right? Like, you can drive to Alpine, basically, right? Yeah, like, yeah, big yeah. Alpine basin. Look, like, first rifle season, the chance of seeing some big old bull in one of those is, like, zero. Because he's just, he's, everybody can see that stuff. You know what I mean? And, like, he's just, he, it's going to be you know, it might only be 12 hours before somebody goes and messes with him, you know? So that kind of, that kind of big open brain is a lot less to, to the elk. They just, they're just, they're, they're out there in the middle of nowhere. You know, they got, they don't have a lot of safety. So, um, yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. It's just kind of, you can, you can find them wherever. Yeah. You gotta grind them out. Get a little bit creative for sure. So, so, uh, talking about more, let's move into more like the third and fourth rifle or, you know, third rifle kicks off early to mid November, at least here in Colorado. Um, you're, you're thinking weather, that's the time that, you know, the snow, you know, it's getting pretty cold. Is, is that kind of your main factor of where you're, you're setting up? Are you pushing lower? What, how does that all play in? If it, if it, if it is snowing, what do you do if it's, if it's, if it's hot and it's, you know, not snowing, what, what's the play there? Kind of break that down a little bit. Yep. Yeah. So the, the way I view it is you've got, <clears throat> you've got snow and then temperatures, right? So to me, uh, I mean, they're both, they're both with some kind of, uh, little exceptions. They're basically about availability of food, right? So if I like, 
usually by mid second season the third season most of your elk should be pushed off the real the above timberline stuff right you shouldn't have availability of seed there um now the last couple of years that hasn't been the case but let's just you know once you get them kicked off of there and all the little nooks and crannies around timberline your density of them goes way up down low so that's not really a strategy thing it's just a fact right just it's going to improve your hunting in some areas like a ton yeah like tenfold well once you get them knocked off of the top um the snow after that like to me to me snow you know if i got it, there's kind of two ways to look at it if i got fresh track and snow um, I will follow elk um, if it's in the right situation. Like, because I, if I know it's new that snow that night, and I will follow elk on horses or foot. And I, and and some people don't think it works. Some people don't. I've killed a whole ton of elk by doing that. Oh wow! You know That's what really I mean? Cool. Get, getting on a fresh track and just grinding it out. Um, I've also jumped a bunch of elk, you know, in front of me, and it didn't didn't work out or whatever. <laughs> but it's not. Um, it's not uncommon to kill elk that way. And, and that, that kind of hits on something. I personally am a lot less worried about running elk out of the country once the weather gets bad. Because they don't, they're kind of limited where they go, but also there's so much rifle pressure, not only on the public, but the, the rifle pressure on the private ground starts getting pretty intense, you know, in most areas once you get in like second and third rifle. So you have elk kind of more, they're kind of bouncing around. So I'm a little less concerned about running out of the country. So to me, to go get on a track and say, hey, like if I know it's super fresh, walk it out and I've got a 60%, 50% chance of killing one or a 50% chance of just boogering them and running and they run off two miles. To me, that's an okay bet. Yeah. You know what I mean, Adam? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that bet. So in a little track and snow, that's fine. But to me, outside of that tracking strategy and just following them, a little bit of snow is just it, it doesn't really matter to elk. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It doesn't affect them. Like a little two inches lick of snow is nothing for them. I'm yeah. sure you've seen them pond yeah. through snow. Like it doesn't matter. The, <laughs> the snow. The snow that moves elk is like brisket high snow. That's what really makes them move. You know, particularly if they've been pressured into somewhere, they will they will grind it out in deep snow if they know that when they go low, they're going to start getting shot at. And so, you know, you know, for it to be significant. But to me, the thing that does that matters more is temperatures. Because I can have, I notice, like, if I don't, if I have mild temperatures, I, you know, really your effective hunting time is, is what, an hour and a half a day, maybe two hours a day. You know what I mean? We, we hunt longer than that, but that's the reality is, is that you got a couple hours a day in those dry, mild temperatures, right? Because the elk, they, they don't have to have their metabolisms not going like it is if it's negative 10 degrees. You know what I mean? And so what I find is that, if it, if it stays cold, you know, below zero for three or four days, all of a sudden we can hunt elk for, for three times as much long or three, three times the, the time frame in the day because they'll be out longer. They just got to feed more, Yeah, you know? So, and it, that can be a game changer, man. If you get really like super cold snaps where they have to be out, 
you know, that's a good, that's a, um, that, that'll, that'll help your hunting a lot. Obviously, five feet of snow can make, can turn things into a butcher shop, you know, but if you're not getting real snow, cold, the cold temps can do it also. Um, you know, one time, uh, I, I can't remember who told me this, it must have been a cattle guy or outfit or something, but if you watch, like, cattle, like, if you're driving into a hunting area, when it gets real cold, you'll notice that beef cattle will be up almost all day, whereas, like, this time of year, they just sit, they just sit around. Yeah. Man, if you're seeing, if you're seeing beef cattle up, just trying to get, they're just having to eat all day long, those elk will be doing the exact same thing. Wow. Yeah, that's a good tip, because I know a lot of the areas that I hunt, there's, there's cattle grazing <laughs> everywhere, so... Um, that, yeah. that makes total sense. You just, you, you know, it's colder, you're expending more energy. You gotta, they gotta eat, you know, so they're going to be moving around more. So if it's, uh, let's say if it's not cold, um, which I've kind of experienced the last couple of years in, in Colorado, even the third season rifles, it's, it can be 60, 70 degrees during the middle of the day, or at least what I've experienced. What, what do you do in that scenario? Are you setting up on benches? Are you just covering more ground? Um, looking in some of those Aspen pockets, glassing more? What's, what's the play there? Yeah. So the last couple of years have been pretty miserable conditions, really. Right. That's what you're describing. Yeah. Warm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they all the all the cards in the deck are really in the elk's hands. So um, to me, all you can do is do the things that you have to do to have a chance, and that's you've got to hunt until it's pitch black. You know what I mean? And I don't and I don't mean like shooting after you're supposed <laughs> to. I mean that I mean that you want to stay there. Wait it out. Elk might yeah yeah wait it out. Elk might start coming out of the trees when you can't shoot, but at least you know you know they're there you know what i mean yep and then you've got to be you've got to be in the good spots or in your glassing spot before it gets you can see anything in the morning that's kind of like a must do that i know it's probably probably sounds kind of cliche or like duh but like i see a lot of people that don't do that you know what i mean um and so that's probably my biggest tip in those conditions um other than that i mean you just got to do what you can do you can glass timber try to find them in there. Um, you know, if you know your geography really well and you know where people and you know how elk travel in there um, and you've got, you know, you got to be very careful because it just, you know, it'll run the elk out of the country, but you can also sit people in saddles and somebody can slowly walk timber and you can kill elk that way. I mean, that's like all the old time outfitters in this, in, in these areas here in Montana, whatever, if you talk to a guy, Who's a, who's a big, you know, outfit a lot at elk hunting, and he's older than 60 years old, 75% of the bulls he killed, he ran out of timber. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so you know, that's, I, it's, you got to be, you know, you, I think that's one of those things you got to be really careful about, too. People around and stuff like that, you want to be careful about um, ruining the situation for everybody. But, um it, you know, if you know your geography and stuff, I don't feel like it's an effective way to kill elk for sure when, when conditions are tough. Yeah, yeah, get them moving a little bit. And um, would, yeah. you, would you say kind of— But you got to know you know, how to, you gotta know, where they're... know where they're at. Yeah, or at least have a bead like, yeah, yeah. oh, I think there's some in this pocket. And, you know, if you guys set up in this draw, then maybe, you know, they're going to they're gonna push up through there when they blow out of here or something, you know, and kind of wait them yep. out. 
Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. yeah, and you got and yeah, and, and you got to be really careful safety stuff and everything else that you do that. But yeah, 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 of course, yeah, that's uh that's really cool. And would you say, kind of fourth season, kind of late November, that that time frame is kind of similar similar strategy to third rifle, where you know it's a lot of weather and and um, snow and temperature kind of dependent and and kind of go off the same strategy. Yeah, it tends to be you know I. I it does seem to be that, like, even if even if you have a really mild fourth, um, which, like, we had a crazy one last year. I, I don't know if you – but it was, like, really mild weather. Yeah. The elk, for, for whatever reason, I don't know. It could be that the vegetation has been dead for so long now that there's just not the nutritional value. It seems to me that, like, by that mid-November, the elk still will move down. So to me, the hunting improves by then, even if, you know, to some extent, even if you don't have, even if you have horrible conditions, conditions, the elk will still start to move down, it seems like to me. Um, but if you have like normal conditions where you got good snow cover, stuff like that, I mean, I think the, the most fun way to hunt that stuff is just typical spot and stock. You know what I mean, Adam? Just go out and blast a good spot. You've got probably three hours in the morning if there's a couple feet of snow on the ground and it's cold. You got three hours in the night. You can catch them in the open. Um, you know, if it's really cold, like I'm two or three years ago, I remember hunting just through the whole day during fourth season. I we would kill elk and deer in the middle of the day. You know what I mean? So to me, it's, if you can deal with the weather, it's a super fun time to hunt because you're the time you can do. The, the prototypical spot and top stock hunt, which is really what we all want to do, I think, or a huge proportion of us, that's what we think about when we rifle hunt, because it's fun. I think those later seasons are awesome because you can do it more during the day. It's not like you have all this downtime, you know? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, that's cool. Um, well, man, Cliff, this is this has been great. We've uh, kind of covered the whole spectrum here from early archery to 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 middle uh time frame kind of that you know just before rut to you know peak rut and now we've jumped through all the rifle seasons and kind of got your whole spiel on everything i think this is this is really good stuff and i've, I've learned a lot <laughs> personally hopefully it'll help me in the future and uh, you know but I've, I've definitely kept you here long enough i don't want to i don't want to ruin your whole time off here and let you recover before you get back on the mountain so um yeah i really appreciate you having uh, coming on the show and definitely have to get you on that uh, for a third appearance as well <laughs> yeah, sounds good man thanks, thanks for having me on I hope, I hope it was helpful I hope there's some you know some stuff that can help people that might be a little different or whatever yeah no this has been great and uh, before we jump off here where uh, where can we go to find you um, I know you're on Instagram um, tell us your website kind of yep. tell us where we can go to, to yep. learn a little bit more about you and your operation yeah, so my Instagram is probably what I keep the most updated, and it's Cliff G R Y, so C L I F F G R Y, and then uh, our website that has all the stuff uh, on the outfitting is F T Guides with an S dot com. So those are the spots, man. Cool. Yeah, and I'll link to that when I post this on uh, on my website, so everybody will be able to to get to it that way and uh, check you out there. So. Um, yeah, thanks again, Cliff. Hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll, we'll talk at you soon. All right. Thanks, man. All right. And there you have it. Big thanks to Cliff Gray for coming on the show. 
had a blast. That was fun. Hope you guys learned a lot. Cliff is a really knowledgeable guy. He's been hunting for years. He's had the outfitting operation for years. Um, I can honestly say from like kind of showing my friends around and kind of taking the back seat and being more of the, the guide, so to speak, you do learn a lot more about, you know, elk and, and calling and, and setups and, and all that stuff as opposed to like just being in the zone of hunting. So I can see why Cliff is, is so knowledgeable on this stuff. He's seen every scenario. He's been through multiple seasons. He's seen it from early archery to late rifle. So, um, you know, jam packed again with, with info and tactics. And, and I really hope you guys can use some of this for your current hunting endeavors, uh, for elk, whether it's in Colorado or not, because it's, it's useful information for anywhere in the country. So again, thanks to Cliff for coming on the show. Um, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe to Sportsman's Nation, you can go to sportsmansnation.com, subscribe there, go to Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and subscribe that way. If you like what you're hearing, leave that five-star review. Much, much appreciated there. Check out Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram. Um, follow along on the YouTube channel as well. Lots of good con- content coming out there. Um, for those of you who are still listening and still out there, <laughs> still listening, still out there hunting um, or planning an upcoming trip to Colorado to hunt elk, Definitely go over to Colorado. Uh, I can't talk right now. Definitely go over to transitionwild.com and get the Colorado Beginner Elk Hunting Guide for free. It's a uh, free PDF that I've put together for anybody who subscribes to the site. Give me your email. I won't spam you. I swear to God. Uh, so uh, subscribe that way with your email. I'll send you that guide for free. And it really just walks you through getting started with hunting in Colorado, you know, showing you where you want to hunt. Um, scouting, gear, preparation, and and most importantly, you know, inspiration to help you go on that hunt for the first time. So that'll get you started. Transitionwild.com. Get the Colorado Beginner Elk Hunting Guide for free. And let's see, what else? Oh yeah, uh, podcast is brought to you by Heads Up Decoy. I've been using the the elk decoy quite a bit, especially um, now that we're getting into more of the calling and the setups. I use that cow decoy, hang it up in a tree. And it really makes uh, a difference, you know, for for whether or not, uh, you know, these pressured bulls or pressured animals come in. They don't see what they're what they're after. Um, you know, sometimes they can turn around and blow out of there. But with the decoy, it's a it's a sweet setup. So check them out, headsupdecoy.com. And that is it. I hope you guys are having fun. Hope you guys are getting out and doing some hunting of your own. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.